Hello, and welcome to the Squeaky Clean Energy Podcast, brought to you by the North Carolina Sustainable Energy Association. I'm your host, Matt Abel. Listeners, welcome to the 78th episode of the Squeaky Clean Energy Podcast, where we bring you the latest in North Carolina clean energy news, policy, and more every two weeks. On today's episode, we have two guests joining us to talk about their recently released book and the easy steps you can take as an individual to achieve widespread carbon reductions. In our conversation, we hone into a few inspirational stories of individuals throughout the country who work the levers of politics to implement large-scale impacts within their community to begin addressing carbon emissions. Before we talk to our guests, though, we have a few announcements to share. Just around the corner is Making Energy Work, NCSEA's annual regional conference taking place October 25th through the 27th here in Raleigh, focused on clean energy policy and regulation. At the conference, we'll be featuring conversations on the carbon plan, customer clean energy programs, the rooftop solar market, the role of municipalities in the clean energy transition, and even North Carolina's Clean Energy Fund. And we'll talk about how all of these topics intersect with the recently passed Inflation Reduction Act and how these large federal investments are set to be implemented and distributed throughout the state. And we're also partnering with a number of great organizations to host some pre-conference events as well, including a workshop hosted by the North Carolina Department of Commerce, the North Carolina Governor's Office, the North Carolina Department of Environmental Quality, and the North Carolina Clean Energy Technology Center called Building North Carolina's Clean Energy Workforce. And then our partners at E2 and the Chambers for Innovation and Clean Energy are hosting a workshop titled The Economic Case for North Carolina Offshore Wind. So make sure to register for the conference and these workshops today at makingenergywork.com. And as a quick update, the carbon plant proceedings are still playing out in hearings at the Dobbs Building in downtown Raleigh as interveners are now testifying, making the case for their own carbon plans. The commission is still aiming to have the hearings wrapped up by the end of the month to ensure they're on track to have a plan completed by the statutory requirement of December 31st of this year. If you're interested in listening into the hearings, they're all live streamed via the North Carolina Utilities Commission YouTube channel with previous hearing days all posted on YouTube as well. And last, before we make it into the show, today's episode is brought to you by Kilpatrick Townsend and Stockton, LLP. As your business navigates the fast-changing and complex energy sector, Kilpatrick Townsend can guide you through the myriad of rules and regulations around developing or financing clean energy alternative sources and implementing sustainable energy programs and practices. Kilpatrick Townsend's attorneys understand the energy industry and are passionate advocates for the success of their clients. For more information, visit KilpatrickTownsend.com. Okay, on to the show. We're lucky to be joined today by two nationally renowned names in the clean energy space, including a New York Times reporter and the executive director of the nonprofit Energy Innovation. They both join us to talk about how the individual citizen can implement strategic political actions to move forward with widespread community change to progress a clean energy agenda and reduce carbon emissions. And their book titled The Big Fix, Seven Practical Steps to Save Our Planet is now available online and in a bookstore near you. We'll drop a link in today's show notes. So with that, 
Let's talk to our guests to have them tell us a little bit more about some of the inspirational stories they've heard from all across the country. Clean energy. Today's first guest on the Squeaky Clean Energy Podcast is an award-winning journalist with four decades of experience explaining complex issues in simple language for major daily newspapers, including the New York Times, the Washington Post, and the Miami Herald. As the lead reporter on climate science at the Times for nearly a decade, he won the John B. Oaks Award for Distinguished Environmental Journalism for a series of front-page articles exploring the basics of the climate crisis. A graduate of the University of Georgia, he is currently a fellow at the Harvard University Center for the Environment. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Justin Gillis to the Squeaky Clean Energy Podcast. Justin, welcome to the pod. Thank you. Our next guest on the podcast is the Chief Executive of Energy Innovation, a nonpartisan climate policy firm delivering research and analysis to help policymakers make informed choices, as well as a Senior Fellow for Energy and the Environment at the Paulson Institute, an independent think tank. The recipient of the UN Climate and Clean Air Award, the Heinz Award for the Environment, and the State of California's Hagen-Smith Clean Air Award, our guest has been appointed to national and international climate panels by Presidents Bill Clinton and George H.W. Bush. An engineer by training, he received his bachelor's and master's degree from Stanford University. Our next guest on the podcast is Hal Harvey. Hal, welcome to the podcast. We are delighted to be here. Thank you. It's, it's great to both have you here talking about some of the pragmatic solutions each of you have identified to reaching carbon neutrality across multiple sectors of the economy. But before we dive into that conversation, I'm curious how both of you came across each other to team up and, uh, and, and write this, these stories of everyday citizens doing incredible things to move the needle on carbon reduction. So how did this partnership come about? Well, when one is in the business of trying to avoid climate change, and there's a giant in the field named Justin Gillis, you better pay attention. So I read everything he wrote um, over the years. And we used to sit down, I would say every 12 to 18 months and have a long conversation about how things are going. So uh, the more I knew him, the more I grew to respect him. But the idea to do a book was Justin's idea. That's true. Uh, I, in fact, I remember Hal and I had lunch one day. I want to say it was a restaurant in Greenwich Village in New York. And... Uh, you know, I'd been covering the beat for the Times uh, for uh, a while at that point, uh, several years. Uh, and uh, it's almost like one Tuesday in the shower, the idea just came to me that, you know, there really needed to be a book because it was clear that people were more and more people that I knew were getting concerned about climate change, but people didn't know what to do. People felt so disempowered by the whole thing and, and felt like it was such an overwhelming problem. And, you know, how was the guy I had met of all the people I'd talked to over the years who, who just seemed to have the best grasp of the practical, of practical solutions, you know, of things that are actually achievable as opposed to sort of political fantasies that are never going to happen, which we could, we might be able to talk about later, like carbon taxes and things like that. So, you know, the idea of the book was, uh, the idea that came to me was let's take that sort of practical approach, the pragmatic approach to the climate problem, put that into a comprehensible book for everybody. I think it wound up taking longer, much longer than either of us expected, but here we are, we've got it done. The big fix is about to come out. So you mentioned partnering up with with how for, you know, because you admired the, the sort of achievable solutions that him and his group were putting out there. So 
Hal, can you tell us a little bit more about the work of energy innovation and the types of policy solutions your team is designing for the market? Sure thing. The first thing that I have to say is we are very much grounded in the math of climate change. Where are the emissions? How fast are they accumulating? But especially which solutions drive the greatest reductions the fastest? The thing about climate change is we, have, we are so late in serious solutions that we've used up most of the global carbon budget for all time. And remember when you emit carbon dioxide into the air, it's there forever, effectively forever, for generations. So at Energy Innovation, we divided the world up into the four big energy categories plus land use. Those four categories are the grid, transportation, buildings, and industry. And one needs a strategy to decarbonize each of those. Um, so we dig in some depth as to how far you can go, how fast you can go, but especially which policy is gonna drive it the most effectively and the most efficiently. And we've got a, about 20 researchers who do this. We consider policymakers to be our clients. We try to work very quickly with them. We always are very careful with the facts and the quality of our work, uh, but because we have some charitable supporters, we don't need to charge them money for this work. So they get a free staff, as it were, if they're really committed to doing something on climate change. The, the, the last thing I should say on this front is, there's a vast difference between policies that work and policies that don't. And there's a 90-10 rule here where you get 90% of your reductions from about 10% of your policies. One of the things that worries me so much about people working on climate change is there's often focus on what I would call decorative ecology or, or trivial solutions, things that cannot scale. And we simply don't have time to do things that sound good and look pretty, but do not scale. That's a good point. And I, I think that kind of gets to the, the crux of the book that, that you all wrote, right, is, is not necessarily thinking about individual actions, but thinking about what are the sort of solutions that individuals can advocate for that do scale and do affect carbon reduction at a larger scale. But before we talk a little bit about that, Justin, I'm curious, with a lot of your writing with the New York Times over the years focused on climate change and even more specifically some of the political challenges that have stood in the way of achieving solutions to lowering carbon in our power system and other sectors, how did some of that reporting influence what you wanted to do next with this book, The Big Fix? It's a good question. I, I, I started really with the science and, you know, at a time, this was about 2010, I would say, at a time when public conviction about, you know, how serious the problem was, you know, the, the polling was going in the wrong direction. You know, people seemed to be uh, becoming more skeptical and, you know, it was, we were, we were in an economic recession and I think that was probably a, a big reason for that. There's an inverse correlation between how people are feeling about the economy and how much effort they're willing to put into the environment. Right. So, but I really started focusing on the science and kind of in, in essence, re spent a couple of three years just re-explaining the science of climate change to people. I now realize kind of naive hypothesis that if people just understood this problem better, that would kind of clear away the barriers to political action and we would see movement. Here I am, you know, newly chastened, you know, newly enlightened years later. Uh, that is not fun the fundamental, you know, hurdle here to political action. But it, it, as I kind of came out of that phase, and I'm glad I, I'm glad we did it, but I came out of that phase thinking, Focusing on the solutions, for one thing, it gets you past some of the polarization in our politics about climate. 
you have this weird fact that shows up in the polls that sort of, you know, at any given time, 60, 70 percent of people think climate change is a serious problem. Closer to 80 to 90 percent people support renewable energy. So there's some delta in there, some uh, group of Republicans, most of them Republicans who support renewable energy for reasons not having to do, I guess, with climate change. So talking about the solutions sort of gets you past the tribal argument over is there climate change or not and into a more productive discussion. So, you know, all of that, that experience of being sort of 10 years on the beat at the Times just led me toward, we, we really need a book that kind of puts all this in one place. And, you know, how was my first choice for the guy to do it with? And sort of he bit. So again, here we are. And to your point about, you know, seeing widespread support for clean energy, our partners at the Conservatives for Clean Energy uh, here in North Carolina actually just released results of their poll that they conducted with voters on both sides of the aisle in which there is widespread support, bipartisan support for clean energy here within the state. And we're starting to see even more support and understanding that climate change is a concern from voters on both sides of the aisle as well, which is uh, also really intriguing to see in a purple state like North Carolina. When it comes to the topic of, of cutting carbon, the narrative for quite some time has been fixated on individual actions to lower your own carbon footprint, which for some seems a little intimidating given potential lifestyle changes and the relatively minor impact that their own changes make within the bigger picture. I think you both do an incredible job in the book, bridging the gap between individual actions and large-scale change by showing small groups of individuals who can affect that change at a more macro level. So in the book, you you share a story of kids who pushed their school board to purchase electric school buses. Can you tell us a little bit more about this story and maybe some of the other stories like it that you were able to pursue in, in writing this book? Yeah, well, there's a bunch of examples now of people, you know, getting involved in the politics of this issue and finding finding it to be tractable. I mean, let me back up a bit. Our, our message to the public here is a, a couple things. This really is not about being a green consumer. Being a green consumer is a, is a good thing to do. It's a perfectly fine thing to do in some of the economic sectors, like, for example, the food system, we think it may be really important, right? It may be the, the lever that kind of really moves things. But by and large, it's not. You know, when you flip your light switch, um, you're not making a decision about where those electrons come from, right? Somebody else is somewhere, somewhere far off in the state capital is making those kind of decisions. And so our, our plea is for people to put the green consumer business on the back burner and become green citizens, right? So we need people engaging in the politics of this problem and we need them to engage at all levels. This is not just, I know Washington feels paralyzed and hopeless to a lot of people right now, uh, but this is not just about Washington. And in fact, I think I can make a political science argument that, you know, Washington will come last, you know, they'll be the caboose on the train after we've got a more robust uh, pace of change going uh, at the state and local level. So a lot of the decisions that need to be made, I mean, all across America, local governments, you know, very near you, dear citizen, are making decisions to kind of perpetuate the fossil economy. If you live in a county big enough to have a sizable county government, then that county government is buying a fleet of cars probably every year, and they, they're still buying gasoline cars, not electric cars. And then the school bus example is another great example. Uh, you know, millions of Americans send their children to school not thinking about uh, the fact that the kids are getting on a dirty, 
school bus belching diesel smoke, you know, that on a hot day, the kids open the windows and it blows in. You know, I, I had this experience as a child, right? Breathing diesel smoke. Uh, we've got an asthma problem in, in children, you know, and here we have this kind of nearly perfect solution of electric buses, perfect except that they cost more money. So, you know, what happened in Montgomery County was some kids there went and got in the faces of the school board and said, I'm sorry, you, you're just paying lip service on climate. We need you to actually do things. And uh, one of the things we want you to do is is commit to electric buses. And it took some doing and it took some financial creativity to figure out how to do kind of a lease back program where they kept the costs reasonable. But but Montgomery County has committed. I th- it's still, I think, the largest school jurisdiction in the country to commit to going to 100% electric buses. And they've got, I believe they've got a couple hundred of them on order right now. So, you know, people going down to City Hall and going down to the local school board and going down to the state capitol in, in, in groups can get things done. And, and, you know, this is what we need to have happening all across America. If I could just elaborate a little bit on that. Inchoate political action doesn't produce much. You need to have some clear goals, and then you need to understand how those decisions are made and who makes them. And this is an important, a really important part of our book. We don't conclude every chapter with a write a letter to your senator. Instead, we say, what are the dynamics of the decision making? What are the venues for the decision making? Who decides that the next fleet of buses is going to be electric or gasoline? Who decides whether you have a super strong building code so that we build green buildings from the get-go? and so forth, all the way down the line, including to how the utility, the electric and the gas utilities are being run. And then you ask yourself, what could be a better decision? And you ground that in some facts. But most important is then say, how can I affect those who make the decisions? And don't go in with a prejudice about the best way to do that. Walk in with open ears and eyes to understand how the dynamics of the form in which decisions are made unfold. That's the secret to success. That's the secret to change. And believe me, the energy industries know this. They know what a public utilities commission is. They know how it makes decisions. They know when and how to intervene. They know what kind of evidence and what kind of hyperbole work and so forth. If we don't match them, at least at some reasonable facsimile of expertise as to the venues where decisions are being made, we get rolled again and again. On the other hand, if you do match them and then you bring in what Justin was hinting at, which is ethical credibility, factual credibility, economic credibility, and this whole question of are we serving the public at a public utilities commission, you can prevail. So there is a David versus Goliath story here, but David better learn to aim well, not just scattershot. I hear that that David versus Goliath comparison quite a bit here in North Carolina uh, with Duke Energy, one of the largest investor-owned utilities in the country right here in our backyard. And to your point, you know, the arguments that that seemingly weigh well with the commission in the state is, you know, fact-based evidence that really shows, for example, renewables benefit the ratepayers in the state. And studies commissioned by our organization and many others now show that solar is the lowest cost of energy equivalent here in, in North Carolina by far. And and I think that's led to some of the significant progress we've made in the state. Some other venues that, to your point, you know, having a clear goal and understanding the decision makers to move the needle. I think there have been a number of groups in North Carolina that have focused on the Building Code Council, that have focused on the Department of Public Instruction and the procurement of electric school buses, uh, especially given the fact that 
Here in North Carolina, we have an electric school bus manufacturer of Thomas-built buses, so I have to give them a shout-out for actually manufacturing some of those buses that are being shipped all across the country. So taking a step back, the, the book focuses on seven practical steps to reducing carbon emissions. Can you outline what those steps are and why you all decided to focus on those versus others? So we start with the electric utility industry because it's the second largest carbon emitter in America, the largest carbon emitter in most countries. And because if you have clean electricity, it enables clean transportation. If you have an electric vehicle or clean buildings, if you have a electric or heat pump building and even clean industry. So transforming the electricity industry is job one. Now these run concurrently, so you don't have to line them up sequentially. But the other great thing about the electric industry is, as you just mentioned, the cost of solar and the cost of wind are now the cheapest two forms of electricity on planet Earth. And the sources are ubiquitous. And it turns out that the fuel supply for solar and wind is stuck right at zero. It's not going to move up and down. So American consumers and consumers around the world right now are paying really high prices for electricity, uh, not if they've got solar, not if they've got wind. So that's the first one is the electric utilities. And we'll spend some time on this, I'm sure, but they are overseen by public decision makers, typically a public utilities commission or public service commission. So the leverage is built in, the mechanisms are right in front of your face for affecting how utilities are run and what kind of electricity they buy. The second realm where we focus is on buildings. If you have an all electric building and you have clean electricity, voila, you've got a clean building. Now, it used to be complex and fairly inefficient to retrofit a building so that it operates on electricity rather than fossil fuels. But the advent of very advanced heat pumps, it's an old technology that's having a new birth, allow you to get four units of heat for every one unit of electricity. So it's a force multiplier and it's a change out. You, you, leave, you leave most of your heating and cooling distribution apparatus exactly as it is. You take out one kind of burner and you put in another kind of burner. It's not as satisfactory or as good really as a comprehensive energy retrofit you know, with new windows and new insulation and so forth. But it's so much faster and easier that we think it's gonna be a runaway trend. The third one is transportation. And again, if you have a zero carbon grid and you're running an electric vehicle, you have a zero carbon car. Now, there are many strategies in transportation that we sp spend a little more time on, but this is the primary one in terms of vehicles, just electrify it. And by the way, you asked me how we chose these seven. It's because you have to win each sector. And in each sector, there's a small number of hugely powerful levers, and there's a large number of essentially benign interventions. So that's the, that's the rule that we followed throughout. So electrifying your vehicles is crucial, whether it's the passenger car or a delivery truck or a taxi or a school bus. In fact, you actually want to go after delivery trucks and school buses and so forth first because they operate all day long and because they are in crowded areas. So the pollution that you're avoiding affects people's health directly, positively affects it directly. In the transportation world, we also spend a fair amount of time on urban form. Is your city designed for people or is it designed for cars? The city designed for cars has typically vast expanses of asphalt. Uh, poor sidewalks, no bike paths, 
and sprawling zoning. If you put those all together, you get what a lot of American cities look like. They're hostile to any mode of transportation except a car. And it turns out they're hostile to cars too because traffic jams ensue. So most cities in America have at least some aspects of this, I would call it design dysfunction. When you flip it around and start to give people uh, trees and narrower streets and restaurants on the sidewalk and bike paths that are physically protected so that you would trust your kid to ride down that bike path, then amazing things happen. You get this, you get a vast reduction in carbon emissions, but you also get a vast increase in community spirit and togetherness. So yeah, just to be clear about that, we, we, we do treat those as two different levers. Uh, one is transportation and then we have a, it's a separate chapter on urban form. And then, uh, so that puts us up to four. One of them is, uh, is industry. So what are, you know, we've got to decarbonize heavy industry and a lot of people don't realize steel making, cement, chemicals, which includes plastics. This is, you know, on a global scale, I'm forgetting, but it's, it's close to a quarter of emissions coming from, from heavy industry, over 20%, I think, coming from heavy industry. And so, you know, we, we talk about several levers in the book that can begin to affect that. Now, we don't, we don't yet have a lot of alternatives. You know, we don't yet have cleaner steel making at scale, for example. We don't have cleaner cement at scale. But there are some ways forward, including using uh, the purchasing power of governments to begin to demand cleaner products in the marketplace. Governments buy something like, you know, half of all the cement and, you know, maybe maybe close to that of all the steel for things like roads and bridges and so on. So if they start changing their standards about what they what they uh, will buy, uh, we think that's going to begin to move heavy industry. And then we've got a chapter on land use and food and the food system and what do we need to do there? And we're sort of encouraging people. There, there, there are multiple levers. There are many things that both state and, and national governments could do. We're arguing for, you know, some big national experiments in uh, can we can we do tree planting at scale, you know, at, at really significant scale? Can we begin to measure soil carbon and use cover cropping practices, for example, to, to pull carbon out of the air and store it in the soil? Right now in the United States, we don't even attempt to measure soil carbon on a, a, a large national scale. So we, we're still a long way from that solution being, you know, scaling up because, we, I mean, we've we, we got to get the basics in place. We've got to start measuring. And then the last lever of the seven is we have a chapter that we call Inventing the Future. And it's essentially asking the public to support a really aggressive national research agenda uh, to create the technologies that we don't yet have, but that we, we will need in the later stages of the transition. Uh, you know, we're probably going to need a lot of what's called green hydrogen, for example, hydrogen produced from renewable electricity that can substitute for some of these dirty process emissions in heavy industry, for example. So, and there are a whole bunch of other examples. I mean, we call for investment in new generation nuclear plants, even though we're both somewhat wary and skeptical about whether that's ever going to really deliver. But we do think the gov you know, the federal government should be putting a lot of money into it. We sort of have a laundry list in that chapter of things that we think people need to need to support uh, investment in and, and support much larger investment budgets. I mean, at one point, this has gone up under Biden, but we sort of figured out that 
uh, you know, for the longest time, you know, the American people were spending more money at the grocery store on potato chips than, you know, our, our federal government was spending on clean energy research. I mean, it, it's it's just been a sort of tiny, pathetic part of the federal budget. It needs to get it needs to get larger. Uh, that's finally started to happen. But, you know, as we know, Biden's latest plans are kind of bogged down in Congress. So we need the public voice on this. And I will say, to your point, that there's there's not nearly as much federal funding and research as we'd like to see. But ARPA-E has done some incredible work in you know transitioning some of this research out into the private sector and funding research projects across the country. I know North Carolina's had a number of projects funded by ARPA-E over the past couple of years. And I, I, I wanted to, to hone in really quick on two of the, the sections that you outlined in the book, first being transportation. And, and Justin, you mentioned a little bit earlier that in terms of policy levers, Washington might be one of the the last to come after you know state and local governments make their actions moving forward. And I think this is a good time to highlight that here in North Carolina, we've seen some really, really progressive actions coming from the governor in which the governor earlier this year signed an executive order creating a target of 1.25 million electric vehicles on the road by 2030. Uh, and then also at the same time directing the North Carolina Department of Transportation to come up with a plan to do just that. So we've seen some really, really incredible work taking place at the state level here in North Carolina. And at the same time, at the General Assembly with last year passing HB 951, that created the first carbon mandates in the southeast for the electric sector. So we've seen some really incredible work there. The other the other piece I, I wanted to mention, going back to, to the research component, you know, we were talking a little bit about nuclear. I think here in the southeast uh, in particular, people get a little bit of the heebie-jeebies when you bring up nuclear, especially when you, you talk about what's happened in South Carolina and Georgia and now seeing Duke here in North Carolina proposing uh, small modular reactors as part of their carbon plan to reach 70% carbon reduction by 2030 and carbon neutrality by 2050. So I, I am I'm curious, right? How do you how do you weigh that, right? Where maybe the utility uses future innovation as a way to put off reaching carbon reduction targets. Yeah, I'm pretty bent out of shape about Duke, to be honest with you. Just a, f- a few years ago, they were proposing this massive gas build, for example. And, you know, they claim to be committed to sort of getting to net zero emissions by 2050. And, you know, the way you tell if people are serious about that is, is I mean, 2050, you know, the people running Duke are now in kindergarten, right? Uh, you know, the way you tell if they're serious is what are their plans for 2030, right? What are their plans in the very near term? And, you know, Duke's plan was ridiculous. I mean, they wanted this huge uh, gas bill. We just can't afford to, to be still adding gas uh, generation to the electric system. They were, you know, fighting renewables. And, and then, I mean, they've come down some on the gas, I think, as in the last couple of years, as this plan has been debated. But now their magic asterisk in their plan is a really large build out of small modular reactors, you know, kind of starting in the 2030s. This is a technology that we don't know exists yet, right? It's, you know, a lot of people are excited about it. A lot of work is going on to develop these reactors. Not a single one of them is up and operating in the United States. There's, you know, I think one or two has gone into operation in China. And so uh, it's really unclear yet, you know, what the performance and what the characteristics of that technology are going to be. And meanwhile, Duke is ignoring or at least underplaying 
some near-term options, including going much heavier on on solar, and, and of course, you've got potential for offshore wind there, right? So I, I just don't see why, I don't understand why the public is letting Duke get away with, with this nonsense and not sort of making a stronger demand. Just to put a finer point on this, the world cannot tolerate more fossil infrastructure. If you keep building fossil infrastructure, then either you're going to waste most of that money because there's strong climate regulations, or you're going to waste most of the earth because there's no strong climate regulations. There's no third way. There's no magic here. The math does not add up. So we have to ask ourselves, if we're going to build a gas pipeline that lasts for 30 years, who's going to pay for the last 25 years of that or longer? The way I think about this whole question of new technology is first ask, will it make a significant contribution by 2030? And if the answer is no, then you have to say, great, we can invest in it if it's promising that we it might work out. But it is not emphatically not a substitute for, for action today. And so don't get lulled to sleep by somebody's R&D project or their promise to do carbon capture and sequestration or direct air capture. The costs, the thermodynamics, the physical requirements of some of those tomorrow technologies make them utterly useless for the next decade. Again, it doesn't mean don't do research. It means don't substitute the promise of research tomorrow for action today. They are not the same. To your initial point of not being able to afford building out additional fossil fuel infrastructure, you know, the one thing that I think North Carolina ratepayers are specifically concerned about in this latest iteration of a carbon plan proposed by Duke is there is a proposal to build out a significant amount of new natural gas generation. And folks are concerned that we're going to see the same thing happen with this natural gas build out that we're currently seeing with coal in which the ratepayers are having to subsidize or cover the cost of retiring those plants early when we have to make another transition in five to six years or 10 years as we decide that natural gas was a poor investment and we need to completely transition to renewables. So why not take advantage of the opportunity now while we have it? So I, I am curious. So based on the stories that you all have highlighted in your book and, and Justin with some of your previous reporting, what are some of the biggest challenges individuals and communities face when working to lower uh, greenhouse gas emissions across uh, the, the number of sectors that you outlined in your book? Well, one set of challenges is that to solve the energy problem by dealing with smart capital stock turnover. So new houses have to be ultra clean. New buses have to be electric. New power plants have to be solar and wind. There has to be some retrofit as well, though. And so to your point about North Carolinians spending a lot of money replacing old coal and then facing the prospect of doing that with natural gas, but they say the first rule of holes is when you're in one, stop digging. Uh, and so there's this, this, there's this rush to gas, which I think many industries like because they don't really have to change anything. They just change the pipe that comes into their factory. So I, th I think, and, and the other thing that is complicated, you know, we point out public utilities commissions hold the keys to the kingdom. They decide where your electricity comes from. They decide a lot more than that as well. But the Public Utilities Commission can be an intimidating place. You know, there's it, the, the typical patois of a Public Utilities Commission hearing is highly technical and highly legalistic jargon. I say bring a different kind of weapon. Of course, do your homework and bring along some friendly experts. There are fantastic organizations with those friendly experts. 
But good arguments also invoke ethical responsibilities to future generations and emotional feelings for preventing your kid from having asthma, allowing your own child to breathe. So when you join a public utilities commission hearing with 50 other moms and dads of asthmatic kids, you will get listened to. And this is what it's all about, is putting the public back in public utilities commissions. Same across the board, right? If you want to build a city for people rather than for cars, you're going to have protected bike lanes. Just one example. It doesn't take much to show the difference between a protected bike lane and a, and a standard bike lane. Go out there and ride it with a kid and you will be convinced. That's all it takes. So we have to bring this part of the story into the equation. So it's not technocrat versus technocrat or economist versus economists, but it's the future of our cities, the future of our planet versus those who would do short-term thinking and destroy it all. I think, Matt, among the biggest hurdles the public faces is people just don't know how to go at this, right? Even if they're willing to do it in principle, they are intimidated by the scale of the problem. I've, I've heard a million times, you know, from college students, from older people, some variation of, you know, this problem is so big and I'm so small, you know, what can I do? And uh, our answer to that is uh, there are things you can do. Here's a, an entire book, you know, we, we call it the big fix for a reason. Here's an entire book about uh, uh, things you can do. And, but the key is, is alliances and finding the other folks in your state or your city who are also concerned. There are ways in to political engagement here and they're not really all that intimidating. It's, it's, it, a lot of this stuff is just no more complicated than going down to city hall and asking your elected representatives to, to do X, Y, or Z. So we want to hold people's hands a little bit and say, uh, you know, please get over the fear, right? You will feel better when you, when you start looking for other people, you know, who are involved in this struggle, making alliances and, you know, figure out ways to have your voice heard. I just don't understand why every parent in America isn't going down to the school board and saying, excuse me, diesel, like, like, when are we going to get past that? Right. That's a very, very simple, you know, demand to make. And so I, I just absolutely believe it can be done. We need more of a grassroots movement than we have. You know, we need more people making political demands. You know, what was the great Frederick Douglass quote, you know, power concedes nothing without a demand. It never did and it never will. You know, we, we, we the public, are not yet making the demand in the, in the loudest voice we can. And that's what needs to happen here. So for our listeners that are listening to this episode today, for them to have some sort of takeaway that after they leave this episode and go back into their communities, their everyday jobs, or even for folks that work in this industry, like myself and both of you, what are some of the what are the five easy steps that they could take today to make a difference? Well, they could buy our book. <laughs> we, we, we're definitely going to advocate that, and uh, that'll give you uh, that'll give you some steps. In the book, we give names of organizations, uh, and it does vary a little bit by state. This is the complexity, right? You really sort of almost need 50 state lists and pe people are just going to have to do some Googling, you know, but there are organizations working on these problems. And so, you know, if I were in the state of, uh, I don't know, South Carolina, and I wanted to know who's working on clean energy, 
I'd, I'd sort of figure that out and I'd get on their mailing list, right? You know, there are things people can do in terms of their, you know, we do advocate some green consumer kind of stuff. We advocate, for example, that people try uh, the new sort of meat substitutes that are coming out, you know, Beyond Burgers and Impossible Foods and all this sort of thing, because we think that will send the signal in agriculture that, you know, helps to begin to shift away, shift us away from really high, you know, emissions uh, activities like growing beef, for example. So I, I would narrow it down to do one thing and do it well. And I would say, look across the span of opportunities and changes and decisions that will be made in your community or should be made in your community. Is there an old coal plant that's clunking along that needs to be shut down? Is there a proposal for a huge natural gas pipeline that's going to run through? What about all those little pop-up restaurants that came because of COVID? Are those going to stay? Can they be part of a new sense of space, a new sense of town? Choose one thing that you're really excited about and then make yourself a, an expert on it. And I don't mean an expert who spends, somebody spends years and years, but I mean conversant. Understand the facts and figures, identify allies, and then do that so often skip step of understanding who makes the decision and what are the forces acting on them. And then be a person who is respected and influential in that venue. It might take a while, but it won't take that long because these things triangulate pretty quickly. And you'll quickly understand who are your friends and who are your enemies and why. The, the satisfaction of having a very clear target and having a very clear method for intervention is profound. And it's not just the satisfaction that's intellectual, it's the satisfaction that you're, gonna, you're much more likely to produce an important result. So choose one significant target, learn how decisions are being made, find a couple allies and go to town. And I mentioned you know, some of the the venues earlier in North Carolina where actions can really be made as it relates to some of the industries that we talked about, including the Building Code Council, including uh, various state agencies, including the North Carolina Utilities Commission. And there are a number of different organizations and groups that are working within those venues to build those alliances with that you talked about earlier, including, I'll use this as a plug for the North Carolina Sustainable Energy Association, where we do a lot of work down at the Utilities Commission and also at the General Assembly as well. Well, Justin and, and Hal, I really appreciate both of you all taking the time today to talk to us about the different steps that folks can take in looking at decarbonizing each of these sectors across the economy. And I encourage folks to, if they haven't yet, order your book either from Amazon or their favorite local bookseller. The book is called The Big Fix, Seven Practical Steps to Save Our Planet. Justin and Hal, thank you both very much for joining us on this episode of the Squeaky Clean Energy Podcast. You're incredibly kind and generous to have hosted us. We really appreciated it. My key takeaway from today's episode is the impact that one individual can have on moving the clean energy market forward. I mean, look at North Carolina. I could sit here and rattle off a whole host of names of individuals that have started up incredibly successful clean energy businesses or have spearheaded the procurement of significant amounts of renewables for their large corporation, municipality, or university. The key is to have a vision and figure out the most strategic methods to achieving that vision, whether it be through the lens of the business world or working through the halls of the General Assembly, or even by intervening in the dockets at the North Carolina Utilities Commission. Do you know someone with an incredible clean energy story worth telling here in North Carolina? Please reach out, because I would love to feature them on a future episode of the podcast. And you know the deal. 
let's stay in touch on Twitter. Give me a shout at Matt Abel for future episode ideas, questions for our next episode, thoughts on today's episode, and your worst energy joke one-liners. And episode 78 of the Squeaky Clean Energy Podcast is in the books, but before you leave, don't forget to rate, subscribe, and share the pod on whatever platform you're listening in from. Sharing this podcast with your network and growing the friends of the pod helps us get just a little bit closer to our shared vision of a clean energy economy for North Carolina. All right, that's it. See y'all later.